This evening, the government has won the confidence of Parliament. This now gives us all the opportunity to focus on finding a way forward on Brexit. I understand that to people getting on with their lives... Well, you've been fiddling with it, haven't you? It was perfectly all right until you touched it. everyone, welcome back to the Cloisterbell podcast. This is episode three in our new series as we talk about um, one of our favourite shows, Doctor Who. My name's Rob. And I'm Liam. Hello. And this week, Liam, do you want to tell them what we're talking about today? Uh, yes, this week we will be talking about the 10th anniversary special, The Three Doctors. But before we do that, there's just a couple of things. Uh, one, of, Just a couple of corrections from the previous podcast. Um where my brain seems to have melted and because um, I was talking about the movie The Favourite which I'd went to see and I referred to Queen Anne when I was talking about the history of her and I referred to her as the last Stuart King um, they don't need to know <laughs> I know but it just seems that Queen Anne wasn't a king the clues in the, the, clues, <laughs> the clues in her title but she was the last Stuart monarch and the other thing as well, because I mentioned Chinese pharmaceutical chemist uh, to Yao Yao. One, I got her name, I mispronounced her name, but I also referred to her as a man. Um, <laughs> but she, she's a woman. So I don't know what happened in the last podcast, but all, uh, for some reason I, f- I forgot there was women. Um, so sorry about that. I just wanted, to, just wanted to get that out of the way. It's okay, I forgive you. <laughs> oh, thanks. And hopefully I think... listeners will too. And... I had edited that podcast and there's a little piece where I got my facts completely wrong so I just deleted that. Oh right, okay. (laughs) So, have you got any news this week? Well, uh, there's a couple of things. Um, So starting off with the Lighthearted in the the most recent edition of Private Eye, um, they've done a lookalike that that the Home Secretary... uh, Sadiq Javid looks like a Suntaran, apparently. (laughs) Uh, I'll put that on Instagram. Just so people uh, people can see for themselves whether he looks like one or not, um, and then so one of the things about series eleven has started to get uh, get reported, which is which is to do with the the viewing figures. So uh, Doctor Who magazine confirmed this, but also the Times did as well, which was sort of interesting that they thought it was newsworthy. That series eleven had an average audience of about seven million per episode, but uh, the Times also reported the fact that Twitch has um, once again recently been showing back-to-back episodes of classic Doctor Who. And and this was reported on the 14th of January, but apparently more than 139 million people have been watching. How did we not know about this? Yeah, I know. It's just... Um, I mean, one, I'm not on Twitch. Uh, I, d- I don't have Twitch, um, so I wasn't aware that they were showing them again. But the the fact that classic Doctor Who has been receiving more than 139 million viewers on it, I thought was quite was quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, so there was that. And then the last bit of news is that Eric Saywood has novelised two, uh, two of his stories from the 80s. One is Resurrection of the Daleks, 
and the other is Revelation, Revelation of the Daleks. Um, Resurrection will be released on the 18th of July and Revelation will be released on the 14th of November. And this will mean that finally all classic Doctor Who stories have finally been novelised. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So but obviously mean- the other, they're not all still available, obviously. But that's cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that was announced, I, I sent you a picture earlier, which was of the the covers that the books are going to have. Yeah, yeah, I'm just looking at that now. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Mm. I don't know. I'm trying to pinpoint the style. Um, it would be good if they kept up with the target. Um, be good if they kept up with the target re-releases that they were doing. With yeah, the new novelizations. Yeah, I'll put I'll put the image on Instagram so so listeners can go and have a look and see what we're talking about. If I've already seen, but I mean, I mm. think I think they've thought about the the color design. So Resurrection has a sort of uh, black and silver design, which I suppose is going off the main Dalek in that story. And yeah. Revelation introduces the white and gold Daleks, and that goes with the cover of that. But I think it's a bit of a peculiar design. It's yeah, but anyway, I mean it's not awful. It it just strikes me as a bit odd, and I think what you were saying as well. I think it would have been nice if they kept it in line with the target novelizations. Yeah, definitely. Is this definitely the final cover art? Uh, as far as I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've only just finished the last ten minutes of the Three Daughters before this podcast. Oh right, okay. <laughs> so it's fresh in the memory. Yeah. But I kind of remembered it all anyway. So I've got the original DVD. Mm-hmm. It says it was out in 2003. I know there's been a re-release um, a little while ago in the Revisitations box sets. Have you got that? Uh, yes, that's the version that I watched. Is there um, a difference in picture quality? I think okay. slightly. Um, from memory because it's been quite a while since I've watched the the original DVD release so from memory I think there was a slight improvement but the 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 biggest thing was with the special special features Um, you know there's a there's a making of documentary on there which wasn't on the original so on but funny enough what's interesting is that and one thing that I was a bit disappointed with but apparently this was due to uh, copyright reasons there'd been a slight change your DVD copy has footage of the 1993 Panopticon convention. Okay. Um, where I think they've got Katie Manning and Nicholas Briggs being interviewed, and I remember really enjoying that, and I thought it was good fun and all the rest of it. But that's not on the that's not on the the, re- the more recent version. Uh, so it was removed. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was removed. So should we get on to the story? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I think just as a, a brief plot synopsis and I'm getting this off the the blurb of the novelization but I just think it's a good it's a good summary it say uh, it says a mysterious black hole is draining away power from the universe even the time lords are threatened the doctor is also in trouble creatures from the black hole besiege unit headquarters the only person who can help the doctor is himself the time lords bring together the first three incarnations of the doctor to discover the truth about the black hole and stop the energy drain the Doctors and their companions travel through the black hole itself into a universe of antimatter. Here they meet one of the very first Time Lords, Omega, who gave his race the power to travel through time. 
Trapped for eons in the black hole, he now plans to escape whatever the cost. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Sounds like that. the coolest movie ever. So, does the TV series live up to that description? Um, I don't think it's fair to um, compare it to that. But... No, no. I'll, um, we'll come to the novelisation later on because I... I as, as you probably gathered, I listened I, I, after watching it. I then read the novelization, so there's there's some interesting comparisons there. But the Three Doctors was the official tenth anniversary story, originally broadcast on the thirtieth of December nineteen seventy two to the twentieth of January nineteen seventy three, um, which is a bit weird. It's just a slight quirk that it was the opening story of season ten. But even though it's the tenth anniversary story, it wasn't actually broadcast on the tenth anniversary. It was no. It was, it was basically a year early. Yeah, but that's anyway. one of the that's one of the big misconceptions out there mm. that it was out for the tenth birthday. But no. But I mean, that, that's what that was. That's what it was made to celebrate, and yeah. um, it sort of it works on that. And like I was saying earlier, the BBC One trailer um, doesn't doesn't tell you much about the story no no it doesn't um the so the 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 trailers on both versions of the the dvd so that was something that we were both able to were they trying to hide the plot well it's a bit funny because i mean for the for for listeners who haven't seen it um there's a moment in episode one where there's this um this strange blob-like creature which is which is being sent to specifically look for the doctor and the Doctor and Joe are in the Doctor's car, Bessie, and all what you see is this massive blow-up thing emerge from from a drain. And all what you see is them looking at horror at this thing, and then the Doctor goes, when I say run, 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 and then they run off. And then that's it. And what, what was the narration over it? Well, do you think we should have a listen to it? Oh, have you got it? Yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. The return of Doctor Who in a new series which finds the Doctor and Joe besieged by a new monster, the Joe. Let's see what Dr. Tyler's found out about him today. Let's see what Dr. Tyler's found out about him today. Let's see what Dr. Tyler's found out about him today. Let's see what Dr. Tyler's found That's a really interesting way to advertise the story. I mean, I appreciate that styles of advertising is uh, promotion rather has changed obviously from the early 1970s to now. I mean, but it's really odd. There's it doesn't use a clip of the Doctor meeting himself, and that was a big major part of of it being advertised in Radio Times, and it's in the title of the story. And you yeah. think that would be the main thing to get people to people to watch it, rather than there's a massive jelly that steals people's cars. <laughs> yeah, so that's okay. something I'm not aware of. Was it promoted? It wasn't a big secret, was it? No, no, I mean, because th- th- <laughs> that was one of the things that Terrence Dix and um, Barry Letts, who was script editor and producer, respectively, of, of, of Doctor Who at the time, and one thing that they really... Th- that 
one of their approaches was you would open the series with a story that had some sort of hook. So in their first series that they worked fully through, you had the return of the Autons as 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 their first and then and then with season nine you had the return of the Daleks after how many years it had been. And then with this one it was now we've got all three doctors in one adventure. Um so people so you got it in the title, you've got it in the hook. That was how it was advertised, but the that's it's an odd trailer. Very odd. Yeah. But having said that, I mean, it must have worked because, I mean, the viewing figures were good. And actually, if you work out the average of all the Doctor Who John Pertwee stories, the three Doctors comes out on top mm. with with an average of 10.3 million viewers. Right. So f- from from that point of view, it was it's, it's the most popular John Pertwee story. Yeah. I think it does get knocked down a bit in everyone's minds, doesn't it? Everyone thinks as the five doctors up there is the main one. Mm-hmm. And we forget that the three doctors kind of set this precedent. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's true. I mean, one, I think the reason why the five, I mean, we'll, we'll be coming on to the five doctors in another, in fact, the next podcast. Yeah. But um, I think the reason why that probably gets the most attention is one, it's effectively a, a it's effectively a feature-length movie. It's a ninety-minute adventure, um, so, and it's and it's celebrating twenty years, and it's got five doctors. So already, it's got a sense of scale that, in some respects, dwarfs the three doctors because the three yeah. doctors is just a normal adventure in terms of how it's constructed. You know, it's a four-part episode. It's a four-part story. Yeah. Um, as would, as is normally the case at the time, it's not its own separate thing like the Five Doctors is. So, the story opens with this weather balloon crashing. Well, no, this cosmic cosmic ray detector or whatever it was, <laughs> and this guy, Mister Ollis, is by the is by the site where it lands, mm-hmm. and he van he vanishes. Yeah. And then this Mister Tyler, this Doctor Tyler, arrives, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, was he a bit rash calling units straight away? I, I I found it strange that he was worried that this Mister Ollis had vanished. Just be, he just he just arrived, and then he he was instantly concerned. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know what you mean, and I remember the very first time when I watched it. I mean, this we're going years back here. It was back when it was on VHS, and I bought it second hand. Anyway, um, and I remember the the very first time watching it and going, oh, that's a bit bit odd. But as is explained later on in the episode, in fact, just a few moments later, you know, he he says that he was going to get in contact with the unit anyway because there was these strange occurrences with the research he was taking place. It just so happens this has tipped things over because now someone's gone missing. Yeah, that that makes sense more in my head now. Yeah, yeah. So no, I thought no, it was I... a bit. I thought it was a bit random at first. It's like mm. if I was going to meet up with you somewhere, and you didn't turn up. I wouldn't pick the phone up and be like, "Put me through to unit." <laughs> Some friend you are. No, no, uh, no I get, uh, yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. But I think the, uh, I get what you mean because our, our initial instinct is a bit peculiar and it does come across across as a bit rash. Um, but no, no, it, it is explained that it just so happened that there were the, 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 these other strange things in his research 
Um, so he was going to get in contact with him anyway. It's just that the, this person vanishing. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about that scene, this is just welcome to pedantry corner. Uh, it was just something that was on the production notes on the DVD where they said that when Mr. Ollis disappears and there's this flash because uh, it's on a uh, it's near a bird sanctuary all the all the birds get freaked out and you see them fly off oh, well anyway no. <laughs> it's a it's a sound of crows played over footage of swans <laughs> <laughs> just that i mentioned it so that's wow. one that's that's one markdown for the story. that's worthy of giving it another watch <laughs> it is indeed yeah interesting i love the following scene though it, it back at Unit HQ mm-hmm. with um, the Brigadier's kind of frustration <laughs> with the whole conversation and the Doctor's like oh pass me the silicone rod <laughs> oh anything yes you, anything yeah. Union can do yes pass me a silicone rod will you yeah just a stir as to yeah. yeah I mean that's one of the good things about the three Doctors is it's it's a story that doesn't take itself seriously and there are lots of humorous moments that's one and that's you know that that's quite delightful yeah. and even um so when the doctor and joe go on go off to investigate and then dr tyler's got basically free run of the laboratory you've got the brigadier who's a bit irritated and just going liberty hall dr tyler you know that's you know that's just that's another nice touch yeah um and then when dr taylor's talking about um all this evidence he's got he's like um They've all seen it, Yanks and the other lot. And the Brig's like, oh. Oh. <laughs> a bit concerned. I suppose you would be, because keeping in mind this was, I mean, it was supposed, it's a bit weird because you got this whole, oh, for goodness sake, I'm going to have to mention unit dating controversy. So the idea was it was supposed to be set in the, f- in the future when the Cold War didn't exist. But obviously at the same time, it's being written and broadcast at the time that the Cold War was taking place so the idea that you know you would inform the americans and the russians which i think is you know that's what the implication is and if you've got someone like the the, the brigadier yeah he would be concerned about that but yeah that's a that's that's handled nicely it's it's sort of like handled deftly yeah and then the printout with um mr ollis's face on it's like it looks like a normal x-ray and someone's got a permanent marker and just drew a face on so elaborate <laughs> his eyes and nose anyway so after the doctor and Jove left unit mm-hmm. they go out to Bessie and then the jelly <laughs> comes out the drain yes um, and it both looks ridiculous and great at the same time doesn't it yeah well do you know how they made that effect no it's it's fantastic right it's an electronic effect which you, you can tell just by looking at it but what they did was they wrapped tinsel around a feather boa and then electronically overexposed the image. Okay. And that's how they made it, which I just think is fantastic. So basically, <laughs> it's a tinselly, fe- uh, it's a tinselly feather boa. Uh, but yeah, just I just thought that was great. <laughs> I think it's one of those things because later on in the story, when 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 you see it getting larger and larger, it yeah. looks it looks better. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because you've got more of the, you've got more of the contrast in it. I think it looks better and there's more colour going on but when it's smaller it does look like a it does look a bit like a crappy effect but yeah. actually but when it's much larger I think it works more uh-huh. 
It's like nothing you've seen before at this point. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, it's sort of... Um, I mean, I like The Three Doctors, I do enjoy it, but at the same time, I think it's... Oh, it's a bit odd. I think it's a halfway house between decent production values and production values that let it down. I think the gel guards are a good example of that. So one of the things that I like about it is that later on, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here, but when the Doctor and Joe um, go into Omega's realm in the black hole and they get, uh, they get kidnapped alongside Dr. Tyler by the gel guards... Yeah. One of the things that I like is that there, there are parts of the, the scenery in o- Omega's palace, if you like, which some of the walls look similar to what the gel guards look like. Right, yeah. And I quite like that. There's a, there's, so there's a synergy between the costume design and the set design. And because Omega's obviously cre- is, is the creator of, of this realm, they've, they've thought about it and I quite like that. So, I think that's good. But, I do have a slight problem with the costume design because... Well, not the design itself, just through how it... How it the how movement, it put together. do you think? Well, you can tell it's a costume. And I know yeah. you're probably thinking, well, there's no other way that they could make something like that. But you, you, I think you can even tell that it's a costume made in two pieces. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things where it's a good idea. There's that. Be, there's been that great synergy between the costume design and the set design. It's just unfortunate that the execution. It you can tell it's a costume. I mean, I suppose I, I'm nitpicking, and I mean this is the early 1970s, and there was a lot of limitations. And don't get me wrong, I can watch the Three Doctors and suspend my disbelief and enjoy it for what it is. But it is, it is a bit of a funny thing. I mean, do you think I'm being overly negative? No, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's not that believable and mm. scary. Mm-hmm. It's it's not very convincing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's expecting too much of the show. But you can't help but think it, can you? No, that's true. I mean, one thing that I do want to say is... Um, I mean, going back... I d- it's really, really impressive that the show is as good as it is. Because when I was watching it, and I've been doing some reading up on it, and the production uh, subtitles on the DVD uh, point this out as well. But the the time pressures in getting this story made was absolutely immense. I mean, even today, Doctor Who is on a very fast turnaround. But with classic Doctor Who, it could really get close to the wire. So one they did actually plan to film this story a lot earlier than uh, earlier than it did but the reason why they had to push the dates back was because of Patrick Troughton's availability so he was involved in a couple of TV series and movies before filming this and they followed one directly after the other so uh. so this story was written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin and they were commissioned to write the story on the 27th of June 1972 then the scripts were delivered on the 31st of July then the 21st, 24th and 25th of August so then what ends up happening is the normal thing of rewrites and polishing the script up and so on now this is when things really come up to the wire so filming begins at Ealing on the 6th of November 1972 
and that's the scenes with William Hartnell and the fight sequence with John Pertwee uh, and Omega's monster. Sorry, just to cut in there. Were all the scenes with William Hartnell filmed separate to the main production? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So um, they were filmed at Ealing on the 6th of November, 1972. And then they were completed then because the idea was William Hartnell was to be much more involved. And I think, I mean, don't hold me on this, I may be wrong, but I think Dr. Tyler was originally supposed to be the first Doctor. Right, okay. And given how, in some respects, he's quite irascible, I think that works. I mean, not everything that Dr. Tyler does in the story would have been given to the first Doctor, but I think it, it was subsequently rewritten. But I think his part... For Dr. Tyler, read the first Doctor. But because William Hartnell was very ill at the time... um, Basically, all his stuff had to be pre-recorded. He wasn't able to remember his lines, so they all had to be written on boards, and then he he read them from the boards. But actually, I think, despite despite all the difficulties, I think William Hartnell still gives a good performance. Yeah. I think it's noticeable that it's um, not being um, performed at the same time as the other actors. Yes, I think it is, but I think... I think that's. I think you're aware of it when you know William Hartnell was ill and the and the, so the production schedule and so on. But I think yeah. if you're just like I remember the, f- the first time I watched it, I wasn't aware of that. I think that's one of those things that maybe you're aware of if you overanalyze it. I think on the whole, it it works quite well. Yeah. Um. So that even, was fu- even though he's stuck in this time eddy, it's still gives the impression that he's going to show up at the end, doesn't it? Yes. At one stage when the when the time lords say, okay, the first dot is going to go in and sort this out now at some mm-hmm. stage. And I think actually the original idea was was maybe to do that, to try and uh, limit the the pressures that William Hartnell would be in, but try at least get them together. In fact, because actually Fraser Hines, who played Jamie in the Pedro Chapman era, he was supposed to be in this story, but at the time he was filming... Uh, Emmerdale, which was a popular soap opera on ITV, and the clashing schedule wouldn't allow it. Um, so actually, all the stuff that would have been given to Fraser Hines was actually given to um, Ian Levine, who plays Sergeant Benton. Mm-hmm. But they, they even held off on that because actually, the very last scene in episode four with Patrick Troughton, they were hoping that Fraser Hines could have made a brief cameo at that point. So there were still plans even up to the last minute to get him in. Mm. Um, but it just wasn't possible. And I think it was the same with William Hartnell. I think they they tried as as much as possible of maybe trying to get him in a bit more involved than he was. But because of his health, it just wasn't possible. Yeah. Without, without knowing what's going on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess it can be a bit frustrating or um, it might seem like a bit of a missed opportunity not having him in but um it was n- it's nice having him back one last time in the show yeah yeah without a doubt and um and as i say despite his ill health and being unable to remember the lines i don't think you're you're not really aware of that i mean maybe if you're over sort of like really really looking at it you 
you're kind of aware that maybe he wasn't well, but I actually think it, it does work and it's still a good performance. And he's in all four episodes. Yes. Um, so, yes, you do have William Hartlow there and that is quite nice. But, yeah, so all his, all his stuff was filmed on the 6th of November. Then, with that completed, location filming... Sorry, began on the sixth of uh, the seventh of November and finished on the tenth. Then there's a bit of a gap. Then they just start doing rehearsals. Then they're in the studio on the twenty seventh of November, nineteen seventy two, and they finish on the twelfth of December. Right. Keeping in mind, episode one was broadcast on the thirtieth of December, and episode four was broadcast on the twentieth of January, nineteen seventy three. Right. That's cutting it close. That's really cutting it close because not so because you finished filming it. And then obviously after that you've got you've got editing dubs and uh, and the soundtrack to do. Yeah. So they were they were really up against the wire, but despite all that, they, they still managed to pull something quite decent out of the hat. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to the story, mm-hmm. probably one of my favourite scenes is when the the anti anti matter monsters appear outside the unit. I think, yes. Holy Moses! What's that? <laughs> and they just kind of jabber along. <laughs> it's one of those laugh out loud moments. Yeah, and I think that that's you have to rewind. A, yeah, I mean it is delightful to watch, but I do think it's one of those unfortunate moments because it is supposed to be a moment of of surprise <laughs> and and drama and whatever. But I think it's one of those things. It's un- unintentionally comic. Yeah. <laughs> and then the firefight that follows that is brilliant isn't it yes yeah, it's the yeah. kind the kind of stuff you'd usually not see on screen yeah and that's true and that, that that's actually handled quite well with all with all the soldiers running around and firing weapons and explosions going off um so yeah that, that's actually handled quite well i like that and then the the antimatter blob thing kind of steals the wall and the door which yeah, i yeah. don't know if that's trying to be a bit comical <laughs> or not I mean, I suppose it is a bit. I mean, you, it's one of those things where I think it's 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 a good idea where it's just zapping all these things away, and then, <laughs> but then, but then with something like that, I think that isn't intentionally comic. There's no way you can take that seriously, especially then later on when the Doctor and Joe are in the antimatter world, and then they just they just encounter these things. <laughs> there's the water cooler. There's a bit of a computer, and then there's just a section of a wall with a door in. <laughs> In the try the door, and it's locked. It's um, I mean, yeah, it's one of those things of you. You can't help but love a show like this. <laughs> it's great. I think. I mean, this is a story with a massive, with a massive smile on its face. I mean, it's clearly, it's clearly a, a celebratory story. You've, got, I, it's one of those things. I don't know whether this was intentional. Or it's purely a coincidence you can make these comparisons. But, you know, so this is a 10th anniversary special. But there is, it does seem to have all the ingredients of a children's party. So you've got balloons. Well, a weather balloon kicks starts everything off. You've got Jelly, the gel guards. You've got a magician who's Omega. He creates an entire domain through his will. And the third doctor describes it as all as a vast conjuring trick. Uh, then you've got presents, which happens at the end of the story. We can get onto that later. Presents. And then you've got squabbling okay. brats, 
Patrick Troughton attempting to steal attention from John Pertwee while William Hartnell tells him to behave and tidy up. Um, and this is something I read ages ago. It may have been from Science Fiction Magazine. I can't remember, but I think it sums up the story brilliantly. Someone described the three Doctors as tacky and tinselly and carries the faint scent of warm cherry aid, but it's all rather fun. Wow. <laughs> so you think the whole thing's just an analogy of a kid's party? <laughs> you think it, Bob Baker was just at a kid's party? He's thinking, oh God, I've got three weeks to write this. Uh... <laughs> he's looking around the room and there's a clown. Thinking, yep, that's, he's the villain. Yep. Yeah, I think that's it. I think Three Doctors is is a uh, is a metaphor for for a tenth child's birthday party. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have I stunned you with that? Yeah, it's, I've never considered it. <laughs> I think I think we should have this approach to analyze all stories. Yeah, that's that sounds sensible. Yeah, find, think, find the most obscure analogy that fits perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So, Sergeant Benton, which I wrote, I wrote Benson in my notes, and then I had to think, which is it? Why have I wrote that? Um, he, him, and the brig obviously enter the TARDIS for the first time. Yeah. So you got their reactions, which is cool. Yeah, I love that. I think uh, Sergeant Benton's line. Well, but then Doctor goes. Aren't you going to say it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? And I just, I was just going, well, it's rather obvious, isn't it? Yeah, that's the kind of reaction you'd expect now. So it's interesting seeing it all the way back then mm-hmm. that it was um, perceived as something a reaction that the doctor was tired of, or the viewer was um, expecting. Yeah, because since the show come, since the show's come back. There has been these attempts, I think, to subvert the norm. So you saw that with Donna, for example, because she's introduced to the TARDIS by being inside it first, then seeing the outside. And then later on, you've got um, Clara, her Victorian version of herself, where she goes, it's smaller on the outside, which I don't think quite... I don't think that quite works. I think that's Stephen Moffat trying to be a bit too clever but you know there's that idea of trying to subvert that norm and maybe you could say that this was the the very first attempt at it of going but yeah it's rather obvious and nothing <laughs> and nothing nothing surprises me anymore about you but i think i think the brigadier's response is a lot better simply it's just going so this is what you've been doing with unit films <laughs> wasting it on creating this massive optical illusion he makes a lot of presumptions and he sticks to them doesn't he yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite cool. I wonder what a typical reaction would be in real in reality for someone to deal with that. I think the best reaction I've seen of someone entering the TARDIS is in Black Orchid. Have you seen it? Um, yeah, but I don't know the instance you talk about. Well, you know when the policeman just walks in and goes, Strike me, pink! <laughs> best reaction ever. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, we see Gallifrey for the first time in this story. Mm-hmm. This very elaborate set. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, we learn that no one can be spared to help the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Which is probably a bit of plot convenience. I'm sure they'd rather 
just give someone to help him rather than break the first law of time, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the good things about the story is that in terms of itself, it's well plotted out. So getting the Doctors involved makes sense. Um, whereas I think perhaps in other stories, it, it, it's either, it is a bit, it does seem a bit contrived or whatever. We'll, we'll come to that when we when we look at them. But um, I think in this story, it's a bit odd. I think the biggest thing is, I think in terms of the threat that the Time Lords are under and everything's being drained in that, they literally got no one to no one to spare. Um, I think it makes sense and why they would why they would bring the bring the doctor to meet himself. But the bit that I think really stands out and is maybe a bit contrived is the fact that the doctor decides to contact the Time Lords in the first place. I was just going to mention this. I think given all the evidence that the third doctor's got. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why he's so concerned. Yeah, and especially because I think there's other stories before the Three Doctors and after it when the threat is a lot, seemingly a lot greater. But obviously yeah. he doesn't He doesn't contact the Time Lord. So I think if you're going to say... If you're going to say what's the plot contrivance of the Three Doctors, I would say it was that. But I mean, it's it's not too much of a problem. I think that you know, it, it's one of those stories where you can just sit and enjoy it, and then just follow the journey. And um, and as I say, it, it makes sense within within the confines of of this of the story. I think it's only a plot contrivance if you start if you start thinking about it and overanalyzing it in relation to the series as a whole. Yeah, but the story that's it's, that's why we're here. Overanalyze the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, and we'll do our best, but um, but in terms of, but in terms of the story itself, I think it's I think it's explained well and it works totally. So the second Doctor arrives in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. He just kind of just appears. Um, he seems a little bit pre-informed about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he meets the third Doctor. It's not like a first meeting. Do you think he's perhaps met him before? I don't um, know. It's just it's just, it's just no, a I random don't... random thought because he doesn't. He just instantly knows who he is. And I know if you go to the books and the audios, there'll be there'll be a dozen, there'll be maybe half a dozen times when they have met each other. The first three doctors. Well, I think the way that it's supposed to come across in the in the televised story is that before he appears in the TARDIS, um, he's obviously spoken to the Time Lords who have informed him. Yeah. And going, right, and so you're now going to meet your future self. So... That's that... the only point I'm saying. Is, could we definitively say this is the first meeting of the second and third daughter? I would say so, given the reaction of the third Doctor. Yeah, okay. Whereas in the five Doctors, clearly in the five Doctors, the three Doctors has already happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they, they recognise, you know, they recognise each other. And I mean, one of the one of the things that I really like about the three Doctors is the relationship between the second and third Doctor. You know that they're basically like uh, squabbling siblings. That they don't really get along, and I think that's quite nice because I think really, I think the obvious, 
idea was, you know, the Doctor's the hero, let's make it all rather amicable, and that they get along. Yeah. So, sort of in the way that uh, maybe... I mean, I know that the analogy doesn't fully hold up, but hopefully you know why I'm mentioning it. So, for example, in something like Star Trek, where they had Picard and... um, And Kirk. Kirk, that's it, jeez. Kirk and Picard meet up. You know, if it's amicable and they really get along, that's fine. But I think in terms of Doctor Who, that could have been a bit bland. So they actually make them sort of squabble a bit and that's actually quite delightful and that, that's another thing that really brings a lot of humour yeah. into the story. It comes across to me as a bit meta if you know what I mean. Like you'd imagine in in the real world these actors on some level maybe wouldn't get along. Mm. I don't know. Well it, it's interesting So I mean I know we keep on sort of like leaping ahead but I mean that's one concern that John Nathan Turner had when he was producing the five doctors that maybe there would be so much ego with the different actors that maybe it would be best for them just to meet in one scene at the end of the story and then that would be it um whereas Peter Davison has always said that that was one of the disappointing things about that story and actually yeah there was a bit of ego but you know they're grown-ups and they actually got along and it wasn't too much of a problem yeah. Um, and it's sort of funny. I mean, when you're watching the making of documentary and so on, it, it actually turns out that there was a bit of animosity between Pertwee and Troughton. Not in a major way. It was just that their acting styles were different. But actually, through filming this and then through conventions and so on, they actually became quite, quite good friends. Yeah, you can imagine so. Yeah. Mm. You know, and there's and there's wonderful stories with, I think it was in the John Pertwee years where John Pertwee was talking about one convention he attended where, um, Patrick he and Patrick Troughton ended up having a massive uh, water fight during the whole of the convention. So it started off with with small pistols, but then fans kept on giving them much bigger ones to the point where John Pertwee ended up having this ma- this huge one with a massive sort of barrel of water on his back and at the very back of the convention hall was able to aim at Patrick Troughton <laughs> he would have completely drenched him but then Patrick Troughton had prepared for this and then just um, managed to pull out a massive umbrella and cover himself <laughs> with it and it was oh, I wish it would have been great to see that uh, yeah. you know but that's quite good so after the second doctor arrives we've got a few moments where he's trying to explain who this guy is mm-hmm. to Joe. Yeah. Um, and then the first Doctor arrives um, and I think, is it the Brigadier's in the, in the consular room at this time? And he's he's, he's asking him, who's that? Um, but it's interesting with the with this story and with the five Doctors, the first Doctor always comes across as being the more intellectual, do you think? Or yeah, the more intelligent? Yeah, that's true. There's something about uh, these two stories. Interestingly, with Terence Dix involved in one form or another, so with the three Doctors, he's the script editor, and with the five Doctors, he's actually the author, where it's always the, fi- it's always the first Doctor who is quick to cotton on to things. 
So with the five doctors, he gets what the Rassalon's clue was. And then in this story, he's the one who gets on about, you know, it's just a time bridge. Uh, the doctors are a lot... So it's the first doctor who needs to prompt them along, which is which is sort of interesting. Where if you were to take it at face value, you would have thought that it would be the most recent doctor. So in this case, the, the John Pertwee doctor, because he's older and supposedly should be a lot wiser who would be a lot more on the ball but I suppose it shows that um, intelligence and how one uses it is also down to the personality So that, I mean the first Doctor does come across as even though theoretically he's the youngest Doctor uh, he comes across as older not just in terms of his appearance I suppose but because he is you know, supposedly wiser so is because of the way he thinks which is different to the second and third Doctor He's able to get it more. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not just that he's wiser. It's like in the Five Doctors, he's reading this language, um, Old High Gallifreyan. Mm-hmm. And do the other Doctors not? Are they not able to understand it? No, the, the, the they're I can't able quite to remember. They're able to translate it, but they don't necessarily understand what it means. Right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So there's, there's that moment when the, the second Doctor goes, uh, what does this bit mean? And then the third Doctor translates it. And then he goes, I know what it says, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And and if we compare the second and third Doctors, would you say either of them is the more intellectual or wiser? Mm, that's interesting. I think in many respects, they're probably even evenly matched. Yeah. I know that the second Doctor comes across as a bit more ridiculous especially to Omega later on in the story mm, yeah 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 Omega doesn't seem to be really impressed it's sort of he's able to converse with the third doctor yeah. um, and I suppose because the third doctor is able to you know because his approach is to deal with things in a with a bit more gravitas whereas the second doctor sort of deals in the ridiculous mm-hmm. which really sets Omega going yeah and actually, talking about Omega, what do you think? Because he's this is a this is an entirely new character. Um, well, he was when he was introduced in this story, but it, he's a major introduction to the series. What do you think of him? The whole story struck me as interesting when I was a kid watching it for the mm-hmm. first time. Um, but looking at it now, as a villain, he's not he's not that interesting. Um, I would have preferred it if they made him a bit more human, perhaps. Hmm. Um, and we got to re- we got to realize a bit more of what of what his purposes are, and what's going on inside his head. I see hmm. what you mean. For me, the. Th- for me, Omega is one of the reasons why the Three Doctors still works. I mean, it, there's there's a lot of strengths going on. I think the overall premise of having the Three Doctors unite in one story is is a, is one of those things that is sort of unique to, to Doctor Who, or it is unique to Doctor Who, and it's 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 a delightfully fun idea. Everyone involved really relishes it, and it's tremendous fun, and it's enjoyable. But in terms of uh, in terms of an idea to really get your teeth into, I really like the idea of, of Omega. Um, the sense of really, he's he's not really a villain. 
Uh, he's just someone who wants to be taken seriously. He misses, you know, he misses the company of others, which is totally understandable. And the bit that I, the highlight of the story for me is that moment when actually you realise that physically nothing of Omega exists anymore. That was a very memorable bit for me. Yeah, it's just his will. And I remember yeah. watching it all those years ago when I was a kid watching it. And as an adult now, that's an, that's an idea that I think still works. This yeah. idea of the will and the self and everything else is gone. And I, I think that's a really good idea. And not only that, but I think the way that it is depicted in the story itself, I think works very well. Mm-hmm. I think what I was trying to say was he's a, he's a bit of a one-dimensional character. You know, there's not other facets to him if you know what I mean he, he kind of harmonges this re- this um, resentment for being abandoned mm-hmm. um, but it would be nice to see maybe other sides to him yes that's true I think um, I think it's a good idea that yeah is perhaps depicted a bit a bit too simply and I think Stephen uh, Stephen Thorne who plays him? Don't get me wrong, does a does a good job, um, but does come across in some respects as a pantomime villain. Whereas if you compare him to the way that he is written and performed in Arc of Infinity, uh, the Peter Davison story, there seems to be a bit more, um, you know, a bit more thought and a bit more of an attempt to to uh, to depict him as a three D character. Having said all that, though, given the tone and the feel of the rest of the story, I think probably Stephen Thorne's performance suits suits is pitched perfectly for the type of thing that they're aiming for for the three three doctors. I think that if you if you were trying to if you were trying to um, get to grips with this idea and depict it with a bit more gravitas, I think it wouldn't have worked, given everything else that surrounds the story. Yeah, I like what you said about his pantomime performance. I love these little moments where he's screaming his head off, or, or when the the two doctors come in, they look at the singularity. I think it is. Yeah. And Omega just bursts out. He's like, "What? What is this?" <laughs> yeah. So over the top. It is really over the top. I mean, I, w- I was going to try and um, I was going to try and do a bit where I was going about Stephen Thorne gives a really, really good, nuanced, subtle performance. <laughs> but there's no way I could have la- uh, that joke wouldn't have lasted very long. Um, yeah. I mean, and yeah, then it's, it's, his it's reaction well. to um, the fact that he, there's nothing left of him, and he screams and it turns into a cry. Mm-hmm. That's another great um, reaction from him. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very, I mean, very over the top. It's really good. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a funny moment because it is way over the top, but at the same time it works in terms of the emotion of the character because it's way over the top in terms of the rest of the story and what we have seen uh, with his performance. But you do actually get the emotional anguish as well. Yes. So, that, so yeah, it's, it's sort of like a, it's an overblown... It is an overblown moment, but you do get the emotion of the character conveyed quite well. So back in the TARDIS, the Doctors have got the famous scene where they do their telepathic contact between one another mm-hmm. yeah um, and 
that's obviously been used again in Doctor Who. Mm. Um, obviously, in the day of the Doctor, when you've got Matt Smith, John Hurt, and David Tennant, um, the War Doctor shares his idea with the rest of the room, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's it's more subtle. They don't have the whole cheesy sound effect going on. <laughs> no, that's true. And to be honest, I think actually the subtlest version of it is in The Five Doctors. It took me ages to realise, you know, the the moment when um, when the Fifth Doctor, his, his mind's effectively been taking over. Yeah. And then you've got uh, the First, Second and Third Doctor going, right, we must be one, concentrate. Yeah. I think that's more to do with the way it is directed. I, th- I had no idea on second, first, second, and third viewings of it. I mean, this may be because I was stupid. I don't know. But I didn't get the idea that that, that was supposed to be a tele- tele- telepathic conference. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I think that's probably the subtlest of it. Uh, but yeah, it is something that sort of creeps in whenever you get a multi-doctor story. This idea of the mental connection. And... Um, it's 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 used on a couple of occasions in uh, the big Finnish audio adventures, The Sirens of Time, as well. Yeah, it doesn't feature prominently in the show itself a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in the new series era, I know I think the first instance um, of him having kind of a telepathy was maybe the girl in the fireplace. But again, that's kind of one of his superpowers that he never uses, yet he always uses a screwdriver. So back to the TARDIS where we were in that scene. Um, mm. I think that's pretty much the end of the scene, wasn't it? The doc- second Doctor ob- ob- obviously lied about his coin flip, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's you know that, that that's quite a nice moment. And the, 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 the John Pertwee really plays that part, uh, plays that moment quite well. With, without saying, it's just a few moments of facial expressions and body language, just going, "I know you're talking crap, but okay, let's just get on with it," and then. There's a payoff to a joke later on where they're about to enter the chamber of singularity, and then the the doctor says, "Let's toss for it." And then the, the doctor, "What would be the point?" Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's handled quite well. I like that. I quite liked that the second doctor stayed behind, because it gave him the opportunity to get back to the centre of the narrative with the mm. usual with the usual cast of the show at that at that stage. If you know what I mean. Yes. If the second Doctor had gone off on his own, mm-hmm. then it's kind of drawn him out of the centre of, sto- center of the story and it's nothing special, if you know what I mean. So it's nice having him interact with the other characters, especially the break. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, that, that's actually a very good, that's a very good point. It, um, it's not a case of, right, we've brought him back, but he's sort of sidelined. We've brought him back properly and he... Yeah, there is a sense that... Um, the second Doctor is seen a lot more. I mean, that wasn't my impression when I was watching the story, because I think on the whole, everyone's used in quite a balanced way. Um, but thinking about it now that you just mentioned it, yeah, I think there's there's a sense of the second Doctor being in the story a bit more. Yeah. I love the Briggs' delayed reaction to the second Doctor when he sees mm. him. He yes. just kind of gives him a second glance. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's adamant that it's not an older version of him. Yeah, and that's one of the things as well. I think one of the 
One of the things that the, the later John Pertwee era gets criticised for is the way that the Brigadier was written. Uh, that he starts to become a bit of a buff- bit of, comes across as a buffoon compared to how he was originally in the Pedro Troughton and the early years of the John Pertwee era. Um, you know, he was a he was a serious soldier and a, a very strong character. But there's a sense that you know he he becomes a bit stupid and arguably this is the story that kind of changes his uh ch- changes that this is the sense of maybe the brigadier becoming a bit more stupid it's not a problem for me i, I like you know i've always liked the brigadier and at the center of it is nicholas courtney given an absolutely fantastic performance but yeah there is there is the sense that um the brigadier you know, comes to a conclusion based on nothing really or simply ignoring those around him because you've got sergeant benton who's explaining the situation and then he and the brigadier is just 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 absolutely nonsense it's just that yeah. the doctor's changed his face again um and i love when the um unit hq's unit hq is transported mm-hmm. and he's saying oh nonsense benton and he just goes out looking for a phone box <laughs> yeah and then because that, there's that wonderful line of pretty sure that's chroma um, says oh, I better go before it's overrun by tourists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it's um, there's there's some cracking good lines in there, and Nicholas Courtney really really plays it very well. And again, that goes back into the point that we were saying before that there's a lot of humour in this story, and yeah. it's 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 great. So after this, we go over to the antimatter universe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to see that even the antimatter universe has quarries. Well, you need quarries. Yeah. No matter where you are. <laughs> In fact, um we'll we'll look into it a bit a bit further, but that's actually one of the things that Terence Dix writes within the novelization. It's this idea that um is explained later on. When Omega is trying to convince the doctors to stay there in replace of him, that you know they can make it as beautiful and and as lush as they want, yeah. But that ends up taking a lot of your mental energy. <clears throat> so the, it's actually explained within the novelization, which I think is quite good, is that actually originally Omega did create this world, which was absolutely beautiful and uh, amazing, and full of lush green fields and meadows and things like that. But over time, that was just too too much of a mental strain. So you end up removing all that so it just becomes this barren place and you just focus on the, the on the essential things that you need that makes sense yeah because there was such a radical shift in tone from the outside to the inside mm-hmm. yeah so the doctor and joe um reunite with this dr tyler mm-hmm. um when in the, in the universe of anima um and you see him kind of drawn on the on the floor. He's writing E equals MC squared, and he's going on about um, the physics of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great that they've wrote a story that um, applies theoretical physics to it, mm-hmm. um, rather than just a villain with power. You know, I I don't know. No, no, I, I know what you mean. And it's it's sort of amazing when you think about it because actually when this story was being broadcast, this idea of, of, of black holes and, and so on was actually 
still at the cutting edge of science. We accept black holes as a, as a, as a standard and pretty much every school kid knows what they are. But at the time that The Three Doctors was, was originally broadcast, this was something that probably only people who were really into science knew about. So it was sort of still at the cutting edge of it. Uh, having said that, though, that scene always bothers me because... Um, not in a major way, but I mean, even as a kid, I was just wondering, well, how does he know that he's travelled faster than the speed of light? And what it just seems completely random that he's plucked out Einstein's fa- famous equation, E equals MC squared. Simply, was, he, all, all that's happened is he's just appeared somewhere else that looks like Earth. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that he's come to that conclusion. No. Anyway, I mean, it's fine. I mean... Maybe he's cottoned on. Like, well, I was over there, and now I've 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 seemingly appeared into a quarry, so I must have travelled faster than the speed of light. <laughs> uh, rather than maybe I was knocked out, and now I've been dumped in a quarry. I mean, what would your initial instinct be if you? <laughs> <laughs> well, although he he was observing all these cosmic rays, and he he knew about the faster than faster than light emissions that were happening. Yeah. Yeah, so actually, I, it does make sense. I just yeah. think it's sort of like just talking to himself and just going, E equals MC squared. Well, that's <laughs> that then. I must have travelled faster than the speed of light. I suppose that's one of the things of... Uh, I don't know. Maybe that could have been explained a bit better when he, you know, you know, he actually explains that when, when he's talking to doctor, the Doctor and Joe, rather than, no, that's just something you would have as an inner monologue, surely. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I like later on in that scene when um the Doctor and Joe meet Doctor Tyler, um, and they're talking about these monsters, mm-hmm. and they say, "What do they look like?" And he says, "Like that." <laughs> <laughs> it's another great reaction. It is, isn't it? And very well timed. I think my favorite scene. I think it's in the same episode when is when they're, they're captured, and um. John Pertwee has his moment of charm when he's doing all those conjuring tricks, you know, making the pencil disappear and then the and then and then the uh, the feathers, the flowers. Oh yeah, yeah. I like that scene. It's, uh, I just, yeah, it is quite delightful. Yeah, and good fun. But I, I, I love Omega's layer. Mm. The set's great. Yeah, and the yeah, mu- yeah. the music as well. Yeah, and the effect, there's this tinkling thing in the background which really yeah. seems to suit the atmosphere quite well. Yeah. But what did Tyler think, Dr. Tyler think he was doing, trying to escape? I thought for sure he was going to die. But he just kind of does a circle, you know, when he does a runner? Mm. He, but he just kind of ends up back where he started. <laughs> I mean, if I was being cynical, I would say it was because the episode was overrunning and they needed some padding, but obviously that wouldn't have been the case. So another great scene, um, unit headquarters disappears. Yeah. Um, and I know you shouldn't really do it, but if you rewind and pause and compare the two shots, the the building disappears. Mm-hmm. And so do a few of the trees in the distance. And then, where you'd expect to see the foundations of the building is just a field of grass. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've never noticed the um, the trees disappearing in the background. Um, but yeah, I suppose if you're sort of like looking at it, just going well, 
yeah how come i can't how come it's it's uh, it's pipes and everything and the foundations have been disconnected there should be a massive hole a bit like how the hospital disappears in smith and jones but it's one of those things that doesn't particularly bother me i think it's handled quite well and given the the technology at the time and as as we mentioned before the the time scale in getting this this program made in time to broadcast i think you know it's it's fine it works it's yeah. not too distracting i think you know it's it there's a it's there it's gone you see a unit such soldier's reaction and then you see it rescinding into a black hole um so i think actually it's handled quite well it's it's it it, it doesn't look like um it doesn't look too poor but i know no. exactly what you mean it's sort of i think as an adult now you just go where's its foundations it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um <laughs> but no no it's it's one of those things i think actually you know it works it's it's one of those quick things of it's handled quickly you get the idea that it's it's vanished and this is a big major what on earth moment and it's a good episode cliffhanger oh yeah totally um so moved into part three of the serial um we're getting closer to meeting omega mm-hmm. and dr taylor walks into the main chamber and um, he's quite impressed, and he says, "Oh, it's almost worth the trip." You know, <laughs> he he was kind of scared for his life. He was willing to risk everyone's life in order to escape. Mm-hmm. And now he's looking at this set, which it's not the most impressive set. It's brilliant, but it's like it's not <laughs> it's not worth your life just to see it. <laughs> I no, was I, I was left there thinking, really, it's almost <laughs> worth the trip just to see this room. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's one of the things where um, I, th- I think you really need, as an audience, maybe to, to spend your disbelief. I mean, I remember as a kid watching it, I I got that, you know, it was it was supposed to be impressive, and as uh, as a kid watching it, I was totally sold on that. I think you know, being a bit more older and a, perhaps a bit more cynical, you just kind of <laughs> really, but um, yeah, I think it's probably one of those occasions where the um, what is written in the script isn't necessarily realised on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I suppose I suppose that's a bit of a shame. I think it's one of those things of watch it with the intent of what's of what's trying to be conveyed that it's meant to be this absolutely amazing magical place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because that's the thing as well. So, like later on, I mean. Uh, Having said all that, though, I mean, I'm, I remember watching it even as a kid being disappointed about the, the whole thing about the singularity. You could tell it was just a, a plume a of funnel smoke. of steam, yeah. Yeah, made in, a, made in a television studio. Even as a child, sort of, that was a bit of a thing to, a bit difficult to overcome and going, oh, that's a bit. It's a strange observation to make. It's like you don't look at the kettle and think, oh, it's a singularity forming above the kettle. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a column of steam. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a, I think that's a bit of a shame. Yeah. <laughs> um. So after this, um, they kind of get imprisoned briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the door turns into a wall, you know, and Doctor Tyler makes an he just makes these pointless observations. He's like, he goes and touches it, and it's like, it's a real wall. <laughs> it's like, this doesn't need to be said. I think I'm nitpicking at this point because at this stage I'm thinking, what's the point in this character? Why is he still alive? 
It's funny that you should mention that because on this occasion, watch because th- that never crossed my mind previously when watching it. But on this occasion, there were quite a few moments when I was thinking, what is the point of Dr. Tyler? Yeah. And I think the point of him is obviously at the very beginning to get Unit involved. But beyond that, it's there is absolutely no point to him, really. He's just a bystander from the from then on, isn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I totally agree that there was this sort of points where, what's the point? And he just seemed to just aid padding. So you mentioned that that escape attempt. Yeah, I think the escape attempt would have had more meaning had he died. You know, make this place feel like a real threat, like yes. it's, it's futile trying to escape. Yeah, because that happens, it doesn't work, and the story hasn't really progressed further. Uh-huh. It, yeah, it, it doesn't really service anything. So as a result, because really that's the only major thing that Dr. Tyler does uh, following his disappearance at unit headquarters. Yeah. And and so really, it um, that doesn't serve a point, so therefore not, neither does he. If that's, if that's the the only thing that he really contributes to the story at that point. I think the the only reason why that character works is because of the actor. Yeah. Um I think I think the character is performed well. I think the, the writing of it is I think probably this is where the three doctors in terms of the script is let down because he's He's surplus to he's surplus to requirements. He doesn't work in terms of how the character is written, but I think that only becomes apparent when you're analysing the story as we are. I think if you're just sort of watching it, the actor plays the part well, and is actually you know and um, makes the character quite amiable and likable. Especially, think- especially in that first scene in 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 unit. Yes, so I think I think that's where it works. I think that's the case of an actor coming along and making a weakness of the script not as apparent. Um, you know, he feels like a welcomed presence. So we've got the brigadier and Mister Ollis making a bit of a team up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of these two clueless people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which I thought it was an odd team up. It was, but I mean, it sort of it, it goes back into the the sense of um, fun that the episode has. I mean, yeah. this idea that the that these two people could mount an attack—it's a bit Dad's Army, but at the same time, it 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 does that thing of it's a bit funny, but at the same time, it sort of um, it it emphasizes that sense of duty that the brigadier has and his sense of bravery, because even though all the odds are against him, he will still try and help. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that that fine line of of that and the fact it is a bit ridiculous. Yeah. So we're almost getting to the point where Omega's figuring out that the second Doctor is the Doctor, mm-hmm. and he, he takes a moment, but he figures it out. Um, and then Patrick Troughton's like, um, "Oh, you're making a mistake. I was out for a stroll with my friend when this horrible jelly came along." <laughs> Yeah, I've got a strong feeling that that was that was a Patrick Troughton ad lib. But it's <laughs> fun. It, but, um, I mean, I may be wrong, but I get a sense that wasn't in the script. But it's a fantastic line, and it is really funny, and I love it. <laughs> and then you've got the two doctors bickering at one point, 
<laughs> and I can't remember who says it, but was it Joe or the Brig that says, you're meant to be working together to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And then they're quite apologetic to each other. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that's another nice scene as well because it's basically Joe has scalded them and they're, sort of, they're, they're, they're like two schoolboys who have just been told off and just say, I'm sorry, miss, I'm sorry. It's... Um, <laughs> And it is that thing of, you know, the Doctor can be brilliant, but can be incredibly childish. And, yeah, that relationship that they have with one one another of trying to one-up each other, but as a result, getting absolutely nowhere. And it needs the others to basically tell them off and going, look, you've got a job to do, get on with it. Yeah. And that that sort of sheepish uh, response. Yeah. Yeah. That was good. And I think it's nice, I'm probably jumping ahead here, um, talking about the end and the, the climax of the story and how how everything's resolved, mm-hmm. but I think I think what's more important is that the fact that they have to come together to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad they kind of put a lot of emphasis on that. Yes, and the fact that it was res- and again I think this is this is quite well written. The fact that the matter was resolved by some by a trait of the second doctor yeah therefore warranting his presence which was the fact you know he plays a recorder that actually becomes a a surprising uh plot device but as a result works really well and also emphasizes the fact that this could only have been rectified by having the second doctor there yeah and it's interesting how they come to come together because it's joe that actually suggests um that the doctors combine their power to match Omega's, and she points out that he's not all that powerful. Mm-hmm. At a point where they've kind of given up hope. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a good example of the companion pulling through and and um, making them aware of what they can achieve. Yes, that's true. But I think what's but what's interesting about that is that it's. St- it's still sort of the the doctor is able to mentally beat Omega up to a point because the cliffhanger to that episode, which I think is a really really good moment, it's simply done but is very very effective. Is the doctor is basically going, look, we can defeat you, and then Omega proves a point of going, no, you can't, and you've got that where there's a moment where he's basically saying, you have to fight the dark side of my mind. And that moment of the Doctor fighting this strange alien creature in in a black void, um, I think it's probably probably my favourite moment in the in the story because it's really it's really quite simple but very dramatic and quite atmospheric, and you do get a sense that you know finally you know you get a sense of Omega's power at that moment. Yeah, but yeah, I love how they try and provoke him. Um... By using his temper as his weakness, and then obviously the uses the second doctor uses um, his attitude to do that. Yeah, and that's another thing as well because um, the, the the was it wasn't emphasized a lot, but it was always there, which was the sense that the second doctor's sort of bumbling persona was there as a way to manipulate people. There was something a bit more darker under the surface. You certainly see it in the Tomb of the Cybermen. And there's sort of there's a hint of it here as well. Well yeah, um he's aware that his sort of cheeky, chappy, bumbling persona um 
can perhaps rile this person and he's using it as a test to see what Omega's sense of self-control is. So yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. So then we get to the point where we see under the mask um, and I, th- I found it odd that Omega needed the Doctor's help to lift off the mask. Um, but moments later, he's able to casually lift it off in front of the mirror, just like it's a polystyrene mask. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But at the same time, so I, I don't mind that too much because it's all about <laughs> it's all about the drama. I know it, there is a sense of contrivance about it. The fact that you know the, the two doctors need to lift the mask up, and then he's able to himself a few moments later completely pull it up. Uh, in a way to show that there's nothing there. Um, But it's sort of one of those things where I can overlook it because it's a good idea and I like the drama of the scene. Having said that, though, I I know exactly where you're coming from. And perhaps maybe if they had a bit more time, it could have been written a bit more deftly. I mean, because I've always wondered when he goes, you know... um, when Omega says, you too would need such masks. Well, well why? I don't well, know. because over time they would fade away. Yeah, but he doesn't know that at that point. Well, he, he did know that he was kind of um, starting to t- deteriorate over the thousands of years. True, but then why would why would you need a mask? I suppose, yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit odd, and it, maybe there is some contrivance with the scene, but I I do quite like it, and I think again that that I think actually probably the biggest selling point in that is is once again the actors, um, Stephen Thorne, Troughton and Pertwee, the way that they perform the scene and act it out, um, really sells it. So after this, um, the doctors end up back in the TARDIS, <laughs> and they finally find the recorder. In the force field generator. Yeah. And then they have a cool face off with Omega over the monitor, don't they? Over the screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Omega offers the doctors the chance to share his exile in order to let his friends go free. Um, and how do you think they would have passed the time if they had stayed? Well, I think the second doctor would have rustled up some recorders at some point. Yeah. Try to entice everyone with his music ability. It would have sent him crazy. Two, uh, yeah, and then the other two probably would have killed him as a result. Yeah. I don't think uh, he thought it through. Maybe not. No. But then, I mean, given those circumstances, you're you you know, you're desperate. I mean, so if you if you can't escape, you would at least want some company. And you know, these two are better than nothing. Yeah. So, after this, um, everyone leaves to go home through the. Through the big kettle, the sing- singularity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The big kettle um, of singularity. <laughs> um, and there's a bit of a goodbye from Joe, mm-hmm. and she's obviously kind of grieving when she gets home. And then the um, the doctors return quite quick, don't they? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. thought there there could have been a bit more of a pause when there's a bit of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of those things where the fact that you know you got these episodes which are only twenty five minutes long, um, I think that's a sense of the time and limitation f- forcing them to maybe quicken the pace a bit. So yeah, it would have been you know just as a you know just draw it out a little bit more. 
But yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, it is yeah. a little, little bit too quick. And then the first Doctor shows up again. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, he's gone. And everybody's yeah. moved on. It's so abrupt. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is a sense that um, the st- they're rushing it along a bit. Yeah, it's like right, quick. We we need to we need to wrap this up. But the the actual ending of the episode itself doesn't feel too abrupt because there's that nice moment when, and I think this is the importance of. The three doctors, not just in terms of just being this really nice, enjoyable romp and celebrating ten ten years of Doctor Who, which is quite impressive for a television program. Yeah. Um, but it also moves the series along because because I mentioned the fact there's a present given in this story, and that is the Doctor's exile is removed. Yeah. He's given all his all his memories on time travel theory and how to fly the TARDIS are brought back, and he's given a new um, dematerialization circuit um, and that's a very nice way to end the story that that bit doesn't feel rushed that feels nicely paced not at all yeah it gives purpose to the story yeah, and, be- and having him redeemed legitimately mm-hmm. in the eyes of the Time Lords is yep. good rather than just having it brushed over mm-hmm. and finally having him move on, on in his own way yeah, so there's a sense of gratitude from the Time Lord, which is which is quite nice. But uh, yeah, it moves the series along because it now it gives the, the the basically the writers of the the series of if they want to do a story set out elsewhere, they can do so without it having to be constantly explained that oh, the Time Lords are be- the Time Lords are being brought back in in order to allow the Doctor to travel to such and such for a particular reasons, as had been seen in uh, Colony in Space and. The mutants. Uh-huh. Um, so now that the, the Doctor can basically travel of his own accord, yeah. so it frees the series up in that sense and allows it to move on. Yeah, and then all the characters go off on their own. We've got the Brig and Benton mm-hmm. go off back to war, back to work. Yeah. Doctor Taylor agrees not to write about it and then leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but my most favourite one is Mister Ollis. Yeah. When he gets home. And he's like, he's going to tell his wife, and he's like, you'd never believe me, woman. Is supper ready? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I, I, yeah, I, I do like that. Uh, that's a very suitable ending. <laughs> in fact, that's one thing that Terence uh, Dix uh, keeps in the novelisation. He doesn't chop, you know, change the order of things around. Yeah. Even the novelisation ends on that moment as well. It, he extends it a bit. You know where uh, it's he's a bit more affectionate. Um, you know he says that he puts his arm around her waist and gives her an affectionate hug, and then they go inside the cottage and the door closes behind them. All right. Uh, which is which is sort of nice. Um, and in fact, it was one of the things I did like was uh, was reading the novelization of it. I mean, one it, it was it made a change of pace because I've been reading a lot of. Um, classics recently and I've been reading Livy's History of Ancient Rome um, so Coming come to the Three Doctors was a breeze to read and it, it, I mean I never read it, read this novelisation itself but I did read some Target novelizations as a kid and it did bring back some you know some good memories but Terence Dix is actually uh, on quite a lot of occasions with the novelisation quite faithful to the televised story yeah but there are a couple of moments 
in it where he uses the medium to maybe create new ideas and or embellish others so for example in the televised story you've got the gel guards and that sentient blob thing which is which we talked about earlier which has been brought to to fetch the doctor the time bridge blob um but what terence dix does in the novelization is he makes the gel guards an entity of that blob so there's a bit where he's talking about how um it's in the in the darkness of the of the drainage system and then what the blob then does is start to divide and multiply itself and then, ah, right. and then these and they themselves create the the gel guards which i thought oh that's quite a nice that's quite a nice idea that's good because visually there's just no coherency between them is there no in, no in, in a tv story no that's true and then and then in terms of the black hole so if you just Bear with me because I'm going to read an extract. So when they're in the black hole and the Doctor and Joe and Dr. Tyler see Omega's realm. In the televised story, it's effectively two bronze-like doors set inside a cliff. Whereas this is what we get in the novelization. It goes, in front of them, the grey desert had leveled out. And there in the middle distance stood a towering castle. It seemed to have been beaten from solid brass. Hundreds of towers and slender minarets glinted dully beneath the lowering purple sky giving the whole place a look of oriental opulence like the arabian nights castle of some caliph the massive main gates were open inside they could see only blackness what he then does in the novelization is uh, we don't get um the kettle of singularity uh what we get is this in the centre, an enormous pillar of fire rose like a colossal fountain, disappearing into the recesses of the roof. Its ever-changing lights made flickering patterns on the polished brazen floors. They were at the flames of singularity. So in the novelization, it's a it's a massive column of flame. Oh, this is like some serious fantasy novel. Yeah, so there's these, these lovely little touches. Uh, and then later on, when, when Omega uses... <laughs> singularity to transport everyone there's this moment when the flames then turn into a column of smoke so right, they're yeah. able to able to go into it but obviously that's something that he he's using the medium to embellish the the imagery of it and obviously that's something that they would have liked to have done in television center but they didn't have the time or the money to do that yeah and the doctor seems so confident it's going to take them home yeah. yeah, I'm half expecting Omega to turn around and say, well, wait, that's my kettle. One bit I do like as well, it's a bit when they're fighting the gel guards and there's this bit where... As, hang on, I'll just read it. As fast as the blob men came up, the unit party blasted them to pieces. Benton literally sliced one in two with his brain and was horrified when the thick legs continued running towards him for a moment before toppling in the sand. Is this sorry? Is this outside unit HQ? Yes. No, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So, actually, on the whole, I mean, I, f- I found the whole thing quite delightful, uh, a delightful read, and it, it, the novelization is on the whole quite faithful to the televised story. But there was just those moments. There's there's some character, just few moments of character, which which make it a delightful read, and just those moments where they. They sort of improve on what we've seen on television. 
So, like, for example, you, you know, the, the, that pillar of smoke that we see in the TV series becomes a flame, which is obviously much more impressive. So, going back to William Hartnell, there's one thing I was wondering is, um, if he had been in it, I wonder how it would have affected that, the dynamics between the three of them. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know you've said that Dr. Tyler kind of fills that void. To, to, to an extent. I mean, I think yeah. if, if Dr. Tyler was supposed to be... If Dr. Tyler is a replacement of the first Doctor, then I think it, there are a few moments when I think it's it's obvious. But as we said before, I think it's it, obviously a, ma- a massive rewrite did take place in order to allow that. And it sort of renders Dr. Tyler a bit pointless as a result. And I'm not basing... I mean, I may be completely wrong on that. I think with Jo, I think her intelligence comes across a bit inconsistent over the story. Mm. You've got mm. a bit where she's relating to what they're talking about, and then later on in the quarry, she's like, "Huh, what are you talking about?" It just doesn't doesn't quite match up. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, because one of the things is, is, I think, in terms of the John Pertwee here, Joe Grant's characterization is pretty spot on. You know, you see her as this naive not necessarily clued up quite young person but she develops with her time as the doctor mm-hmm. um where you know there, there are moments in pretty much every story where you go right joe's grown up joe's matured joe's braver you know for example the sea devils she rescues the doctor rather than the other way around there's a bit in the curse of peladon where the doctor's perfectly willing to let Joe take part in some very important political negotiations and Joe handles that really well the three doctors is a bit of an anomaly in that so yeah you're right there are bits where she's you know she's a lot more on the ball and she's basically the sort of the cipher for the other characters she's explained to Benton oh I think that's a telepathic conference and so on but yeah you're right there are moments when she does come across a bit a bit stupid yeah. Which isn't isn't what we've come to expect of Joe at that point. Yeah, you're right. It is a bit, it is a bit odd. So, um, I'm gonna do a rating. I don't really haven't put much thought into it. I think I would give it a seven, a seven out of ten, because I think on the whole, it's uh, as we mentioned, there are certain things within the writing of it which don't quite hold up. But on the whole. I think it's a nice idea. Um, that it, it's fun. It's humorous. It's enjoyable. I, um, it's one of the stories I watch, and it kind of puts a smile on my face. Um, yeah, it's a, it's in good enjoy. It's a good, solid, enjoyable romp. Uh, if if you were to put it on and go right, we're going to watch the three doctors. I wouldn't. I wouldn't object to it. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Seven out of ten seems seems quite fair. So, for anyone who's listening, if you've got this far, I just want to say a big thank you for listening this week. Um, if you'd like to like us on Facebook, it's Cloisterbell, and on Twitter, it's at PodcastBell, and also on Instagram, Cloister underscore Bell. Um, and if that was too much for you to take in, you can head over to cloisterbell.co.uk, and all the links are there. Uh, yep so uh, as Rob said thank you very much for listening and tune in next week where we will be discussing the 20th anniversary special The Five Doctors cheers goodbye bye